So we're going to continue looking at St. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth that we have in our Bibles as 1 Corinthians. And we're going to carry on with this until about uh, Christmas time. And the text for today is one of the most frequently read in the New Testament. It's certainly, I would say, apart from the Lord's Prayer, the text that has been read more than any other in this church, and I would suggest in every other church around the world as well. It continues Paul's two big themes in this letter, uh, the middle part of this letter. The, The church is one, one body. He's developed over a couple of chapters this picture of a body where the bits of the body are linked to one another. So he started that we saw last week where he was talking about the head and the body. He's going to carry it on in the coming month uh, when he talks about spiritual gifts and different people in the church as being different parts of the body. And he uh, uh, has it in this chapter as well. And part of the idea behind that picture is that being church means putting other people ahead of yourself. So we didn't uh, go through this in detail because we did chapters 9 to 11 as part of our all age services. But the theme in those chapters is in everything you do, put other people first. So Paul uh, talks at some length in chapter 9 saying, I had the right to be paid. Everyone else who was an apostle was paid, and he was paid in other places to allow him to do the work that he had. But he said, amongst you, I didn't take a stipend, effectively. Not because I wasn't entitled to one, but because I didn't want you to say I was only here for the money. He said, I want you to understand, I put you first. And he uses that as an example. And he's going to carry that on in uh, this chapter the second half of chapter 11. So we began to see last week how Paul developed these pictures as he outlined an understanding of men and women ministering to each other, equal yet different, putting each other's needs first. And now he's going to turn to another aspect of the church's worship, which is communion. I always try and give you a lunchtime summary. I was teaching someone the other day who uh, is an aspiring preacher and uh, I said if you, if you haven't got a to one or two sentence summary of what it is you want to say then you haven't worked hard enough. You need to go back and look at it again because you need to distill down what it is you're talking about. And here's what I'm talking about today. Our salvation depends upon our attitude to Jesus. We have to come to him with humility with generosity and courage if we're to receive his life. Our salvation depends on our attitude to Jesus and we have to come to him with humility, with generosity and courage if we're to receive his life. Salvation depends upon our attitude to Jesus. We have to come to him with humility, generosity and courage to receive his life. So I'm going to read now from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And verse 17. You might recognise this. Well, hopefully you will. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. 
In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why so many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. This is the word of God. Paul often had to deal with divisions in the churches that he pastored. Um, If you read the New Testament, if you get David Suchet to read the New Testament, you will notice that a large part of his work is overcoming divisions. Very often that stem from different people coming together with different ethnic or national or religious backgrounds, normally Jews and non-Jews. Actually, this was such a novel idea in the ancient world that when the Romans started to write about Christianity at the start of the second century, they didn't have a word for it. They couldn't work out if it was a religion or not. See, religions, in their mind, were bound by uh, the... Uh, nationality of the people involved. The Greeks worshipped their gods, the Jews worshipped their gods, the Romans worshipped their gods. And yet here was Christianity which was saying, well no, in our churches there are no Jews, there are no Greeks, there are no Romans, there are no English or Scots or South Africans, there are only Christians. There are no black people or white people or... Uh, Asian people or European people, they are only Christians. A bit like uh, when the uh, head of the US Marine Corps in the 1970s was facing pressure about whether the service should be integrated or not. Uh, He said the only colour the Marines recognise is green, which is the colour of their uniform. 
In other words, it doesn't matter. If you're willing to put on the uniform and serve, then you are equal with everyone else. And this was such a strange idea that people couldn't get their heads around it. I mean, we're quite used to it now. But it's, it's, it's not something we remark upon. As I look around this church and see people from Hong Kong and China and Greece and South Africa and Europe and different parts of Europe, it is not commented upon at all. Yet for the world Paul lived in, it was remarkable. People just didn't understand it. And so he spent a lot of his time trying to work out how this was going to work. And yet at Corinth, that wasn't an issue at all. That wasn't the problem. The problem in Corinth was that you had class divisions. The rich and the poor were separate. You see, Paul had churches, he did build churches where you had people who were still slaves, people who used to be slaves and had worked their way up and bought their own freedom, which you could do in the Roman world, and people who owned slaves and were very, very rich. And you can imagine that that causes some problems. People have to learn to relate to each other in a new way. When you come to church, I'm not your master and you are not my slave or my servant. We are brothers and sisters. And actually, the church at Corinth was really wrestling with this. They came to head when they were taking communion. In the first century, communion happened in the context of a meal. It's one of the reasons we like to eat together. Uh, You might have noticed the number of church meals has increased over the last few years. That's because we think it's really important to eat together. The the early church ate together. And they would take communion in the context of the meal, just like in the Last Supper. So the Last Supper, to state the blindingly obvious, was a supper. There was food, there were courses. Then at the end of the meal, Jesus took the bread and wine. And this was designed to be a moment in which the church as a whole took bread and wine and celebrated together. Yet, it wasn't working. Why not? Well, the thing about very rich people is that they don't have to work if they don't want to. They can keep their own hours. And so you have, if you uh, work, if I work our way through what Paul is talking about here, he had some people coming before the others were there. So the rich would come early. They didn't have to get off work. They would come early and they would start to eat. And they would start to eat. You know, a Greek house looks something like this church. I don't mean the roof and stuff. But there's a big room like this. And there's a small room up there like that. And if I can put it this way, these are the cheap seats where they're standing room only. And the expensive seats are up at the top where the host sits with all of his rich guests and they lie back and they recline. It's like one of those great sort of pictures you've seen from Asterix or something else where the Romans are all lying there and the servants are going around bringing them grapes. And in Corinth, the rich were arriving and they were lying down and they were beginning their feast and the best wine would be brought out and the best food would be brought out. And then the pits would close or whatever the, the industry was in Corinth, the port would shut and the tin mines would close and in would come the workers and the slaves and they would come and they would stand around in the cheap area and by the time they got there the rich people had eaten all the food and drunk all the drink and everyone's there saying shall we take communion and the host when they could rouse him from his drunken stupor managed to blurt out well there's no wine left and no food left effectively the stalls where the cheap seats were, were getting nothing, while the rich in the box seats were drinking everything. Now you can imagine what this 
causes in a church. It just reinforces everything Paul came to undo. Everything Jesus came to undo. It's a long way from the picture of Jesus who at the Last Supper took a bowl of water and washed his disciples' feet. A million miles away from that. And Paul is predictably scathing about this. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you at all. No praise for you. I mean, it takes a lot for Paul to have no praise for people. Even in the the parts of this letter where the Corinthians were going wildly wrong, he would usually find something good to say. And in this he's saying there's, there's literally nothing good about the way you're doing church at all in this area. Shall I praise you? Your meetings do more harm than good. If you do church in this way, people would be better off if they didn't come. Right? The man who founded the Christian church said that. The way you're doing church is so bad, it, we, people were better off not coming to your church. Damning. So he doesn't just tell them off. This is what I like about Paul. He doesn't just leave them. He explains why it's a problem. You see, you might think, look at this and think, this is a problem really of table manners. It's just impolite. It's just rude. You know, we say that to the kids. Don't start before your brothers and sisters have arrived at the table. If you finish, don't leave the table before they've finished. And you have to bend the rules a little bit because one or two of my children are daydream eaters. And so you've been sat there for 10 minutes and 15 minutes and it's going past and they sort of eat another chip and gaze out the window. You say, actually guys, you can go. Is it just a question of poor etiquette? Of being impolite? Well, no, Paul says, this isn't a problem of table manners. It's that you don't understand the gospel. Communion isn't just a meal for Paul. It isn't just a quaint ceremony or a nice tradition. If you've come from a uh, Baptist background or a similar background, you might uh, have quite a low view of communion. I did, actually, before I began to study passages like this. This is a nice thing we do together. We remember Jesus. We take bread and wine. and It's nice, isn't it? It's actually not that. It's not that at all. It is an encounter with Jesus. Communion is an encounter with Jesus. And Paul is saying, your attitude to it, when you're taking it, is actually reflecting, it's depicting your attitude to Jesus. Communion, in other words, is the gospel in a dramatised form. We like words, we have long sermons, I'm sorry about that. We read our Bibles, and Paul's saying, we not only do that, we act out the gospel by taking this bread and wine. And when you're acting it out... You are betraying it. Communion is about Christ. First Paul says, Jesus is the host of the meal. It's his table. It is as if when we take communion, we are there with Jesus as he serves food to his disciples. It is the Lord's Supper. That's not a title, it's the name of the person who is hosting it. If I go round to your house, it's your dinner party. You choose what is served, you choose when it is served, you can choose whether you want me to come formally dressed or informally. It is the Lord's Supper. It's the same idea as the old spiritual. 
Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Or no, obviously not. I wasn't. It was 2,000 years ago. And yet what they're singing is, it's as if we are there. It's as if we are there at the moment of the crucifixion. And Paul is saying, when you come to take this meal, it is as if you are there and Jesus is before you and he is offering you the bread and wine. And yet, you are choosing to eat in a completely different way. When we eat the meal without seeking each other's good, Paul says, we are, it is no longer Jesus' meal, but our own. It is as if you have turned up in someone else's house, taken their food out of the oven, replaced it with your own food, kicked off your shoes, put them up on the table and started asking for the TV on. You're having your own meal, not Jesus's. We've decided that we want to eat, we want to live on our own terms rather than his. Why does it matter? Because it's about more than bread and wine. See, the only way to receive or to live the Christian life is to allow Christ to be the one who serves. It is the Lord's Supper. You can't receive new life, be saved, unless we're willing to come to Christ on his terms and receive from him. Don't take my word for it. Jesus said to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. If you're not willing to accept what Jesus offers on his own terms, you can't have him at all. It is Christ's meal because salvation is Christ's gift. Again, of the rich young ruler, I was meditating on him this morning as I was preparing this again. The tragedy of that story of a young man who came to Jesus zealous for good works. He was keen on doing good. And yet Jesus said, if you want to follow me, I must be your Lord, not your money. If you want to eat my supper, it must be my supper and not your own. And the young man went away sad. No amount of money or good works will avail us unless we will come and take an equal seat with others of every class and nation and receive from the Master. It is one of the reasons why racism is such an abhorrent sin, because it undoes the gospel at its root. And not only that, but class within the church should have no place. Again, I've said this before, I'm a fan of Downton Abbey, may it rest in peace. But I see there's a film coming. Who knew? Uh, you go into churches of a particular generation, there's a pew reserved for the, for the Lord of the parish. The big house. They get the front seats. Shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen. Everyone is equal before the Master. Then Paul says, Jesus is not only the host of the meal, he is the meal. Now again, I'm going to, don't stone me as a crypto-Catholic. Okay, it's just the words of St. Paul. You've actually read these and thought about what they actually say? The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. 
Paul says in verse 27, So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Paul's fond of puns, actually. Fond of puns. That's a pun at the end. Body and blood in the bread and wine. Body in the body of Christ. The church. Jesus is really present to us when we take communion. People have written tomes on what this means and how it works. There have been wars fought over this question. Actually, I think how it works is irrelevant. We don't have to explain how the Spirit of God brings us into the presence of Christ. In a sense, that isn't the point. The point is that our attitude to taking communion reveals our attitude to Jesus. In the end, Jesus is the only thing that matters. He is the way, the truth, and the life. How we respond to him determines whether we receive the blessing that comes from his presence or the curse of his absence. That's actually why Paul is saying, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourselves. The way you respond to Christ determines whether you receive life or death. Jesus said this, he said it in John 3, 17-19. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Hallelujah. We should sing that verse. I have no no idea why we stop at John 3.16. It's wonderful that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish and have eternal life. It's even more wonderful that the son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to get you. God is not out to get you. But, he says, to save the world through him. He came for you. For me. And yet, we are the ones who judge ourselves. We're the ones who judge ourselves. He says, we, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because they haven't believed in the, in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. If you want a brilliant picture of this, at the end of the last battle in the Narnia series, I am going to spoil this for you. It's called the last battle. It's the last one. Narnia gets destroyed. I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. Right? But it's called the last battle, and it's the last one in the series, so not massive spoiler. At the end, Aslan, who is a picture of Jesus, stands before uh, the uh, gate of the dying Narnia and before him comes everyone who has ever lived in that world. And he says nothing. They look at his face and they determine which way they go. They either want to be with him forever, to live in the light of Christ, or they don't and they pass into the darkness in his shadow. What Paul is saying is when you come to take communion, Jesus is there and you determine whether you want to have him or not. Or if you're really here to get drunk, in the Corinthian case. If we will not come and take Jesus to us, take his life into our own, follow his teaching, trust his death and his resurrection for ourselves, we can't have life. The Corinthians who treated communion as an opportunity to gorge themselves and get drunk despised Christ and the sacrifice he made. They considered it trivial, not essential. Yet it is in our response to Jesus that we make our, our own choice between judgment and blessing. Christ is the purpose of the meal. 
said this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take communion, we're not only meeting with Jesus, we are declaring something, we are announcing it. It's a drama. We are declaring his victory and promise and his life to the rest of the world, whether seen or unseen. When we come to Christ, we know that we give ourselves to a cause and a life that is greater than us. We are confident of the victory that he has over everything. We proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he lived, that he died and that he conquered death. It's what we say at the end of communion. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Hallelujah. But simply, we declare that we are on his team and not on our own. I used to watch wrestling when I was a child. Uh, I used to love wrestling. It all got a bit serious and dark after a while, but uh, back when I was a a child, uh, Hulk Hogan was still a hero with his yellow. I can see you laughing, Maeve. It might be giant haystacks is more of your your, uh, vintage, I don't know. You would watch the wrestling and you'd have these teams of wrestlers come out. And I, I know it's all fake. I know, I know, I know. They, these teams of wrestlers would come out and they'd be fighting. And you'd have someone was on someone's side. And then they would, uh, they would come to the end of the battle. And they would, you would think that te- the, the partner was going to come in. And he would finish the match off. And they would pin down their adversary. And then all of a sudden he would turn around and lamp his own partner. And help the other team. And everyone would be like, oh no! He's shown his true colours. He's announced to the whole arena on whose side he really is. When we take communion, we are announcing spiritually to ourselves, to others, you see, on whose side we are on. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, if you are coming and you are taking communion, way that disrespects and dishonours and despises your other Christians there. It's as if you get to the moment of the pin and you pick up a chair and attack your own side. We're on Jesus' side. This is a sober sermon. As we begin to look to another year of activity and of worship together, It's helpful to have a sober sermon. It's helpful to pause and to ask God how we're doing. The first thing I want to say is as a church, now our numbers are starting to pick up again as we come back into the new year and they will get bigger over the course of the year. It might even be full again at Christmas. And as there are more people here, there are more opportunities for division and for falling out. As a church, we should be, like our Lord, slow to anger, quick to apologise, and quick to forgive. There's no place for cliques, whether based on class, race, gender, age, or anything else. And actually, that doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. We have to work at it. Second communion is really about the gospel. So let me ask you the gospel question. How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? 
how is it with you and Jesus? My master John Wesley built an entire framework of disciples, a whole church, out of that question. How are you doing with Jesus? Maybe you're in a place where you aren't sure that you want to let Christ be the host. That's really a question of control, and I'm not despising it. I've struggled and wrestled with this at times myself. And there are times when we come to different areas of our lives. You might be a Christian for years and find there's one area of your life where you're still not ready to let Jesus be the host. It can be because of fear. Because we're scared of what allowing him to host might mean. Might mean for our jobs, might mean for our families, might mean for our lives. Or what we'll have to give up control of. If that is you, if you sense it's becoming your attitude, I want to urge you to come to the Lord's table. Come and receive from the one who made you. The food is free, but it takes humility and courage to accept it. Maybe, and this is one for experienced Christians very often, or those who are wrestling with faith and haven't yet found their way to Christ. We can make things so complicated and fraught that we lose sight of the one person who actually matters in it all. And it's not you. And it certainly isn't me. In the end, the meal is Jesus. And that's all that matters. To adapt the Beatles song, all you need is Christ. Ba-ba-da-ba-da. All you need is Christ. I read uh, a blog by an Orthodox priest who I, he's very insightful because he was a convert to Orthodoxy. So he writes with insight from two perspectives. And he said, I've lived as an Orthodox Christian for 10 years. And you might think that that's the most complicated way to be a Christian. There are all these fasts and icons and incense and all the rest. And he said, the thing I've learnt is that in the end, behind all of that, it's really just about Jesus. Now, we don't have icons, we don't have incense. But his insight is correct. It is all about Jesus. Actually, you can strip everything else away. As we start again in September, strip away layers of confusion and bad habits, of hang-ups and hold-ons, and meet again the man who loved you and gave himself for you. And maybe finally you feel the challenge to proclaim your trust in the Lord's death and resurrection to your own faith. It begins at the table and from there it moves to our families and friends, our workplaces and gyms, our lunch clubs and hobbies. Why not pray for God to begin to show you someone to share your faith with this week and give you the opportunity to do so. If you would like to find a way of sharing your faith with someone, it begins with prayer, and then you could be wondering, what should I do? You can either invite them along to church on a Sunday morning, or if they are someone you think would be interested, why not invite them to Alpha? The worst that can happen is they say no. The best that can happen is they say yes, and their life is never the same. If you're doing it from a place of love and of grace, they will receive it in the way it's intended. We've got these flyers. I'd like everybody to take one, whether you intend to hand out or not, and be praying this week, is there someone I can invite? Someone God would have me invite? And then give it to them or ask them in another way.
I'd like you to stand with me, church. We're going to take communion in a moment. It's not actually a week when we normally take communion, but I didn't think I could preach this sermon and then not take communion. So we're going to stand and we're going to take communion together in a moment. But first of all, let's stand together. I'm just going to have a pause to think. Just as you stand there, you might want to put your hands out and receive from the Lord. I'm actually going to pray some music quietly. Just ask and pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to convict us of anything that he's speaking to us about. And then we're going to take communion together. Come Holy Spirit. Come Spirit of the living God who makes the bread and wine the body and blood of Christ. Come the one who loves us. just have in my heart that there might be one or two here who need to know that as you take communion this is what love tastes like my beloved child the Lord says I love you I see the hardship I see the difficulty I see the anger all I want you to know is that I love you come Holy Spirit speak to us